Let me ask you a quick question. What are the biblical authors Ezekiel, Isaiah, Paul, and John have in common? Hmm? That they're in the Bible? Well, yeah, that's one. But actually, they were the only people allowed to see a vision of heaven. But only three of them were able to write about what they saw and all the details that they couldn't explain and they tried to put in new words for everybody to read. In fact, only one of them, the Apostle Paul, was forbidden from sharing about his own experience. And yet, interestingly, there are approximately 50 books on Amazon right now of people who have visited heaven. And unlike those biblical authors, these individuals have provided an extensive details, producing movies, promoting their experiences in talk shows, and conducting seminars and speaking tours. That's interesting. The reason for that is because heaven has captured the world's imagination from the beginning of time. I had to confess, when I became a believer at the age of 17, I was not really impressed about heaven. The ideas of heaven for me was uh, now that I was a believer, and it was a kind of a little legalistic uh, church, uh, and we were having long services. Just the idea that being in heaven is like being in an eternal worship service, it was not enticing to me. <laughs> not only that, those who are somehow explaining what heaven will look like were telling me that if you are not in the worship service, you might be hanging out in a cloud playing a harp. So there was not a lot of clarity about heaven when I was growing up. Maybe I was not attending too many funerals at that time yet. But actually, the, the reason why is because at that age, I was thinking about doing so many things before my expiration date, before I died. So I think part of the reason why I was not really enthusiastic about heaven is because many preachers that I listen to preach about heaven, Revelation, and other books, prophetic books, they were more concerned about telling me all the little details that they were able to miss the main point, the important thing. As we continue our studies in the book of Revelation, I don't want to make the same mistakes that so many people made about in my life. Because I don't want to go into all the little details, and probably that's exactly what you're expecting from me, but I'm going to disappoint you right now. I don't want you to miss the main point, and the main point of Revelation is that God wants to be known. God is presenting his son, Jesus Christ, with the purpose of whatever was veiled for so many years now was finally unveiled, and that's what Revelation is all about. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the son of God. However, many people who talk about Revelation, normally they like to emphasize in that period of time when a lot of things are happening on earth. And it depends what is your view about the 
order, the chronological order of the prophetic events, some people might think that they are in the end times right now. And they, they think that whatever is happening, the, the, the order of government that we have, or, or, or the wars that we're listening on the news or watching on the news that are happening, are part of the tribulation. And let me tell you, if you study the book of Revelation, you will realize that this is heaven in comparison to what will happen. <laughs> so just don't overemphasize things like that. But how important is to understand and don't miss the point. The book of Revelation is to provide hope for the ones who already trusted in Jesus Christ. So when they faced tribulations, even in this life, before they were taken in the air for the Lord, which, by the way, in my view, is the next prophetic event in God's calendar, you are not consumed with sadness or with despair but you have hope that God has control of every situation. The vision of heaven that we see in um, Revelation 4 and 5 help us to see a different view, understanding that the book of Revelation is basically the other bookend about paradise. The Bible started with paradise and will end with paradise. And Revelation provides for us this other bookend, which is an amazing way to, to see it. So these two chapters, Revelation 4 and 5, Help us to see a little glimpse of what heaven will look like. Actually, in the entire book, right here in Revelation 4 and 5, we see what is happening from the moment that the church is taken up, what is happening right there before the Lord's throne. But it's important that I remind you something. Anytime that you are reading the scriptures, you need to keep in mind something. Whatever you see, whatever you read, it's not about you. It's all about God. It's not about you. Your name is not in Revelation. You look for the name and it's not the 666, no, no worries. It's not in there. You will not find your grandmother's, even though she was a great believer, you are not going to find her here. You're going to find any single president, not even the queen will be here in the book of Revelation. Because every single thing that we're going to read is about the awesome God that we have. So before we dive in in Revelation 4 and 5, let me, let me give you a little uh, picture of where we are in our study in the entire book. Remember that in Revelation 1.19, it, the book is given, us, John is given us an outline. Actually, Jesus is given to John and John is given to the churches, all of us. The little outline of the entire book. He's saying in Revelation 1.19 that he needs to write down what he has seen. He has seen the glorified Lord. He is supposed to be right about those things. And we already saw that in chapter 1. And write both the things that are happening now and will happen later. So what you have seen is the vision of the exalted Christ in Revelation 1. The things that are happening now refers to the seven letters that he wrote to the churches. I call the seven memos to the churches. And the things that will happen beginning with Revelation 4 until the end of the book is the things that will happen in the future. As the Lord wants his church to be prepared. Not to go through the tribulation but also 
to fulfilling the promises that he made with Israel. So if you want to know what is actually the polls that you need to take on what is going on in the world today, always, always look to Israel. Not, don't look to Ukraine. Don't look to Russia. Look to Israel. That's what you need to keep in mind. Because God is going to fulfill his promise to that people, that one day that people will totally be surrendered to the Messiah that they long time ago neglected to recognize. So as we continue our studies in Revelation, let's keep in mind, at least in these two chapters, this main idea. The Father and the Son are worthy of all praise for the work of creation and redemption. The Father and the Son are worthy of all praise for the work of creation and redemption. So we can be full of hope knowing that God is in control in whatever is happening in this crazy world that we're living in. Christ's victory is assured right here in the Bible. And all who put their trust in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior will be saved. So let's open our Bibles in Revelation chapter 4. And we're going to see these two wonderful chapters as we're going to catch a little glimpse from heaven. And we're going to see how the Father is being worshipped and how the Son is being worshipped. Let's start with the first one. Worthy is the Creator, God the Father. In Revelation 4... We're living the familiar, the familiarity of what he was happening, John was experiencing in the historical aspect. And now he is transported. Remember in Revelation 1 and 2, he was mentioning that in the spirit, he saw a vision, the vision of glorified Christ. So maybe in the body, maybe in a transcendent moment, he was taken up captive to see a different perspective. The perspective from the throne of God instead of the perspective of the early situation. So when we study these two chapters, I, wanna, I, I want you to do something. Very intentional to doing something. Listen, please. Read carefully. Take the time to ponder. What can you hear? What, what do you see? How do you feel? Many times we call this worship center a sanctuarium. And in many places, it depends what kind of faith, evangelical faith you're coming from. You always try to be quiet. You don't bring drinks to this place. You always hush people who are speaking louder because you are in the sanctuarium. And the Lord's presence is here. You will be surprised what is going on in heaven. Because what you are not going to find in heaven is silence. You're going to find thunders. You're going to find noises. You're going to find songs. You're going to have claps. You're going to find people worshiping the Lord with all the lungs, with everything that they have. Not like we're doing it here, that we feel like we are the frozen chosen, that we cannot move. We hate to leave the house because we don't want to be confused with Pentecostals. I'm sorry, did I say that loud? And then we are constricted and we feel like we are constipated because we are not actually expressing what we need to express. But that has to end today. 
when you go to heaven, when you see these glimpses of heaven, you will start seeing what is going on there so you can start rehearsing right here and prepare yourself when you are before the Lord. Otherwise, you will be afraid and you're going to be in another side and you don't want to be in the other side of heaven. <laughs> you want to be there. The closest that you can be to the throne of God. So let's, let's learn. Let's see a different perspective about heaven. The first thing that I can tell you in verse 4 is God the Father is sitting on his throne. Verse 1, John tells us saying this. Then as I look, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice I heard before it spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. He didn't say, John, come up here. Let me show you what happens. Don't interrupt. No. It's like a trumpet. It's like a command. It's like an order. Exactly what happened in the army. Attention. That's the shout. Come up here. Let me show you what is going on here. So this open door is describing here. It's not a, a kind of a portal to a faraway place. It's an opening into a different sphere. A reality that is always, always existed. The significance of this, as I mentioned to you when we studied the letters to the, to the churches, is exactly what happened to the church in Philadelphia. They have a door set before them that nobody can close or open. That tells us that like the church in Philadelphia, like the church in Bryan, Texas, we have and unlimited access to the God of heaven. Second, John says that the voice was like a trumpet. He's not saying it was a trumpet. That's why in Revelation, you will see a lot of comparison. The word like is because John was totally amazed with what he was watching, what he was seeing, that he cannot find human words to express what he was watching, so he has to compare with only the, the vocabulary that he knows. And sometimes that's what happened to me when I'm preaching in English. <laughs> I only have in my, my head uh, maybe 35 words that I use over and over and over. <laughs> and if I don't read different ones, then I will be silent completely. <laughs> and then I use my hands. <laughs> so the word like is a comparison that he's making. He's comparing something that is going on. And number three here, the voice was familiar to John. That same voice spoke to him in chapter 1. Who, who was this on Revelation 1.10? It was Jesus. He was offering John the opportunity to go through that door and get into the heavens and see what is going on at that point. That's where we are on Revelation chapter 4. So instantly, I was in the spirit, says John. And what he saw... It's amazing. Please, the most important thing that you're going to see in chapter 4, there is an object of the attention of John. And it was the throne. And he noticed that the throne was in the center. But obviously, he was not captivated by the throne, but he was totally mesmerized by who was sitting on that throne. And what he will describe in Revelation 4 is what is happening on the throne around the throne, in front of the throne, behind the throne, and everything surrounding the throne of God. So what is happening first on the throne? Verse 2. 
And I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The throne in this chapter is the center. You were singing a while ago, Jesus be the center. <laughs> he is already the center. You believe it or not, he is at the center. That you are not in that consciously, but he is in the center in heaven, and he obviously is in the center on the earth. The throne symbolizes God's sovereign authority to rule. The person on the throne was God the Father. And being sitting on the throne in that language, in the apocalyptic language, but also in the scripture, sitting on the throne is what happened with the kingdoms. When the king is sitting on his throne, he is governing, he is in control, he is dictating, he is not sitting worried, concerned about what is going on in the world. God is sitting, God is in authority, he is in control. That's what you need to see when you read that God is sitting on his throne. He is in control. He is actively exercising the duties of his executive office. He is administering over the affairs of his own creation. He is not resting. He is reigning. So no matter what may seem to be out of control in your life today, if you think that you are going to lose a job, if you think that your family is crumbling and your marriage is not going to be enduring until the end, if you feel like the relationship with your children is going away, is going astray, Whatever is your own situation, the economics, your job, whatever, just remember that regardless what is our circumstances, God is sitting on his throne and he is in control. In Revelation 4.3, John is describing for us in HD, in high definition, what is going on. The one seated on the throne, God the Father, was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian, and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. So the sovereign God, who is invisible, at that moment, he makes himself visible. He is described as, as contemplating two precious stones, the jasper and the carnelian, or sardius. So the jasper stone, according to what John saw, is like a diamond. Because we can compare on, later on Revelation 21, 11, the throne was covered by these clear and translucent stones who were reflecting not their light, but God's light to the entire kingdom of heaven. So it portrays the purity, the brilliance of the holiness of God. Since such a stone picks up and reflects the light, remember that you are, are like little gems like that. Because you and I are called to be also light of this world. He is the light. But those who trust in Jesus Christ, he makes us also little lights that we can reflect that light of Jesus Christ. So if our light is not shining, we need to work on polishing that stone. A carnelian is a sardine stone, was blood red or maroon for you who like to gig him. <laughs> Even you don't feel happy today because of yesterday, but that's all right. 
It's portraying God's wrath and justice. That's the meaning. So amid what is going on in heaven, the white light of his holiness and the red flames of his judgment are perceived here of what he's contemplating. Also, we see like a rainbow. And we think of a rainbow like an arch, like a, like a bow, because we are totally consumed watching those things when it's raining, right? We see the rainbow, the different colors. This is like a rainbow. It's not colorful as the rainbow, but the rainbow basically is surrounding the throne. It's more like a capsule, like, a, like a, those movies that you watch when, when it's a, like a cupola. More like that, something like that. It was covering, and it was shining in green, so it was not colorful like a rainbow. The green means grace, faithfulness. That's what represents the rainbow. Remember what happened in Noah's time when the Lord hung a, a bow in the, into the heavens, promising that he will have grace, he will no longer destroy the earth. So that's the symbolism, this symbolism of the rainbow. And it's, it's green. That means fruitfulness. Unlike the partial rainbows we generally see on earth, this is a complete and circle throne. God's grace will endure forever. That's the symbolism here. But notice, everything else surrounding, everything surrounding the throne points to the one sitting on the throne. The vision immediately moves from who is on the throne to number two, who is around the throne. Verse 3, 24 thrones surrounding him, and 24 elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. 24 thrones with 24 elders. This means that the elders will have a position of authority under God. But the identity of these elders is really difficult to determine. There are many views. Some people, some scholars believe that they are probably the 24 courses of priests describing 1 Chronicles 24, or maybe a high order of angels. Others believe that they could be the 12 tribes plus the 12 apostles alluding Revelation 21, or the representation of all the believers. But the important thing is know who they are. The important thing here is what are they doing? So don't miss the point. If God wanted us to know who these elders were, he will tell us. But for him, it was not important. So you can do whatever conjecture you can do, but what he is presenting here, what he is showing him, is what is happening around the throne of God and the one sitting on the throne. Some people believe that this is going to be people, not angels. Some others believe that they will be angels, not people. Whatever it might be, don't miss the point. What is happening there? What is happening there? They're worshiping the one sitting on the throne. May we likewise decide to worship and serve God here and now so we can fully worship and serve him when we are there together with all these angelic beings and people. So this is what is happening around the throne. Now John describes what is coming out from the throne. You ready? From the throne, he says in verse 5, came flashes and lightning and the rumble and thunder. What, what about the silence? 
What about the quiet place, the quiet time? It's a lot of noise, joyful noise. This cosmic turbulence is symbolic of the power and majesty of God and his divine authority to judge. So he saw his grace in the rainbow, and now he's looking at his justice on the thunder. In front of the throne, verse 5, there is something else happening. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. We see the same imagery in Zechariah 4, 2 to 6. Seven lamps representing the Holy Spirit. The multi-aspect of the Holy Spirit. So the comforter, which is the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who came to comfort those who were suffering, at this time, when we're looking in Revelation, the comforter will become the consumer when he comes from God's presence to earth, where he will consume the wickedness during the tribulation period. In front of the throne was these people. But also, in front of the throne, there was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. Like crystal, like sea of glass. Not exactly that, because interesting to know, glass was rare in the New Testament times. They were looking at mirrors that were not necessarily were made of crystal or glass. So it probably this is a typology and analogy about the sea of glass <clears throat> that means a vast expense and the, the, the separation that, I, that is before the holy God and his creation. Not because they are separated on purpose, it's because sin causes a separation. And there is a distinction of a holy God that he is and the sinful people that we are. It may also be another representation of what will happen in the end times with the wars, with the, with the, with the, um, the wrath of God manifested. So whatever is this, means John is not very specific. We need to understand that we are dealing with a God that is totally different than us. Even we carry the image of God, we were made with the image of God, it doesn't mean that we are like him or he is like us. That is a separation. He is holy, I am not. So for those who tend to think that this is all about me, let this chapter four of Revelation remind you that it's not about ourselves. Everything is about God. Not only God is sitting on the throne, God the Father, but God the Father is worshipped in his throne. In verse 6, we start seeing this happening. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes from the front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third one has a human face. And the fourth one was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out. According to the comment, commentary written by Robert Mounds, these four living creatures are also exalted angelic beings who form an inner circle around the throne leading the heavenly hosts in worship and adoration of God the Father. They resemble the cherubim that we read in Isaiah, in Ezekiel 1, in Isaiah 6, although with some difference. They cover their ears, their eyes, their feet, 
But these ones, in particular, Revelation 4, they are speaking. Not necessarily singing, but also they are speaking. That's, they were alert. The eyes symbolized that there was nothing that can pass by them. They were attentive to everything that was going on there. So you cannot sneak out. They will watch you. That was the best surveillance place that you can find in heaven. Nothing can escape their notice. They were ready to obey God's command. And the word like expressed similarity. So some people believe that they represent the creation. These four living creatures represent creation. The wild beasts, domesticated animals, human beings, and flying creatures. Some other authors interpret these like the strength of a lion, the ability to serve as an ox, the intelligence of a man, the swiftness of an eagle. Whatever it might be, what we can see is everything that has been created in heaven and earth are participating in the worship of the one through God. It's exactly what we see in verse 8. When these people, I mean these angelic beings are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. These creatures worship God for his for his attributes, centered to John's attention here in Revelation. Holiness, power, and eternity. Because God wants to be worshipped that way. He wants to be worshipped as the Holy One. Three times they declare holy, holy, holy. This is important. This is called the triazion. It means that that is the perfect holiness you can imagine. The word holy means distinct, separate, different, unlike like any other thing, any other thing created. God loves to be worshipped as the powerful one. God's absolute power. He is called the Lord God, the Almighty, who had been a huge encouragement to the people at that time that they were struggling, especially John, who was in exile in Patmos, who was suffering because he didn't bow his knee to the emperor, because the emperor, the Roman emperor, Domitian in this case, he was asking everybody, the whole kingdom, to bow before him because he was God, according to their beliefs. But John said, ah, uh -uh, there is only one God, and he's in heaven. So he is worshipped as the powerful one. And thirdly, God loves to be worshipped as the eternal one. Beyond this, his holiness and the omnipotence Stretched from eternity to eternity. He is known as the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. This phrase speaks of the eternal nature of God. This, this concept triggers an avalanche of praise and worship in heaven from all the living creatures. And they carry out, as we read in verse 9. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship. The word worship in this context means basically prostrate with your face on the ground. When was the last time that you prayed? Do you worship the Lord when your face totally on the ground, recognizing that he is God and you are not? Let me tell you something. The manner that you worship, the position in which you worship determines what is the condition of your heart. Believe me. We are not doing things for being seen by people. But the way that you act, the way that you express your emotions, your being to the Lord in worship and prayer determines what is the real condition of your heart. If you do it for being seen with people, that is the condition of your heart. But if you do it because you decided to do it, 
for him. That reveals the condition of your heart. If you want to be frozen, that's the condition of your heart. That's fine. However you want it. Never feel manipulated for doing anything. Except for just express yourself in the most wonderful way. Recognizing that you are before the one sitting on the throne. The 24 elders fall down and worship. The one sitting on the throne. The one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. God is worthy of our worship and praise because he is the creator of all things. Never forget that. The elders will join the living creatures in praising God. Hear the word worship, like, like I'm telling you. It reflects that prostration, that, that facing down. Their praise contrasts sharply with the worship demands that the government at that time. Because only God was worthy of that. Number two, worthy is the Redeemer. When we go to Revelation chapter 5, and this one we're going to move quickly. The 24 elders and the four living creatures lay with their faces on the floor in worshiping God the Father, the creator of all things, the only one who is worthy to receive glory. But now we move the camera from the throne and we position that camera in a different object. That was a, a book, a scroll, a scroll. After the powerful image revealing about God in his throne, John sees something else, verse 1. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of God, the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and outside the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. The scroll in the right hand of God pictures that conveying God's power and ownership of the creation. It's like at that time, maybe John was keeping that familiar image. Maybe that's how the deeds or the testaments were presented with seals. That means that it's important what is in there. But this roll, this scroll in particular, was written from inside and outside. There was so much to say. It was so important because there has seven seals, the perfection, whatever it is. And when you break those seals, you can see exactly what God's plan for the future for this planet Earth was. What is exactly his plan of redemption can be. So God is holding the scroll. Most likely, this was rolled up like a papyrus or a parchment. And it has been closed for all this time until that moment. But that was a problem. And the reminder of my time, I'm going to explain to you the problem, the solution, and the response to this solution. What was the problem? They look and look and look, and they couldn't find anybody who was worthy to open that scroll. That's what we read in verse 1. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals of this scroll and open it? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. John is weeping. He's weeping because nobody has been found worthy to open this book. They look everywhere. I imagine that was a contest like American Idol everywhere. Or America, or the world got Stalin, maybe. <laughs> but couldn't find anybody qualified to do this. 
John begins to weep because he knows how important it is that the God's plan can be completely revealed. That his plan to redeem the world from the fall of sin can be completely erased and start all over. He knows how important it is. But no one was worth it. And he started crying. He started frustrating. But God's mercy and grace will never, never allow the world to remain in hopelessness. Hopeless. There is a solution. The solution is the lamb that is presented right here in verse 5. One of the elders confirmed John the following. Stop weeping, John. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then John, John turns to look at the lion, and what he sees instead was a little lamb. Then I saw a lamb that looked like as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings. And among the 24 elders. He has seven horns and seven eyes. Which represent the seven false spirits of God. That is sent out into every part of the earth. There's a lot of symbolism here. John uses symbolism to describe the spectacle that is rich with meaning. The lamb, for instance, appeared to, to be one that was slain. And that is portraying Jesus Christ and what happened as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we read in Isaiah chapter 3, 53. Roman Mons writes, In one brilliant stroke, John portrays the central theme of the New Testament revelation. Victory through sacrifice. Jesus is worthy. Not necessarily because he is the son of God. But because his work on the cross and his victorious resurrection. He is the redeemer. He is the one who purchased you and me with his blood, with his body. And draws closer, closer to the one sitting on the throne. Because Christ alone has passed through the death and come alive. He alone has endured the temptation without any sin. And he alone has faced down Satan without giving in. Christ is worthy. Christ is worthy. He alone is worthy of implementing God's kingdom's plan here on earth. That vision that we see of seven horns represented perfect strength and power. We see this in Zechariah 1.18. Also, Christ is a sacrificial lamb. He's not any weak. He was killed, but he now lives forever in God's presence with his mighty power. He has seven eyes, representing the spirit of God. Christ sent into the earth to exercise the judgment. Zechariah 4.2. So as John observed the symbolic image, perhaps in his mind, like in a picture of science fiction, that lamb started evolving and finally he saw that it was his beloved master, Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus, who stepped forward and took the scroll from his father's hand. What was the response to that solution? Expressing praise and worship to the Lamb. That's what everybody who was observing at that moment, who was silent for a moment, because no one was found worthy. At the moment that he took the scroll, everybody erupted in worship. When the incarnate Son of God took the scroll, look at what happened. And when he took the scroll, verse 8, 
the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which were the prayers of God's people. The prayers probably represent the, 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 the beggings for justice and vindication before the, the one sitting on the throne. Then John looks at the lion of Judah, and what he sees is the lamb who was slain. And look at what happened, verse 9. Everybody was singing in a loud voice. You are worthy to take the scroll and break it, the seals and open it, for you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people from God, for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. And they will reign on earth forever and ever. The song of God's people from all the nations, from every language, tribe, was praising Christ for his work of redemption. Then I look again, and I heard the voices of thousands, millions of angels around the throne. And of the living beings and the elders... And they sang in a mighty curse. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive the power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth in the sea. And they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the Lamb. Christ is being worshiped because he purchased back to what we already belong to, which is God. Everything belongs to God the Creator. And he has inherited everything into the hands of the ones who is worthy to receive all prayer. Remember when John captured the words of Jesus saying, my father and I are one. Then you see it here. Even if they are two different persons, they are one same God. And this is what we see here. But the blessing doesn't end here. You who have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have promised not only that you will see your master when he returns for you, but you will be in eternity with him, whatever he is. You will be reigning with him in a throne, a special throne. So, in preparation for that time, when that time comes, what about we can start practicing? Let's do a dress rehearsal here on earth. And start expressing what we feel about God, which is worship. And we need to stop being concerned about what we think about me when I'm singing. I'm telling you, everybody here was singing. Everybody was here was worshiping. Everybody here was speaking. They didn't care how good they sounded. What they care is how sincere they were with what they were saying. We have access to the throne of God. We walk into the throne of his children. We have adopted as God's people. We are made joint heirs with Christ. Not only is God's righteousness imputed in us, in our account, but also we are given authority over all creation because of Him. His inheritance is our inheritance. So it's one thing to worship God because He is our Creator. 
and it's appropriate to do so. But it's another thing entirely to worship God when we realize how much he has loved us and what he was able to do to be able to purchase us from our past condition. He sent his son as a lamb to be slaughtered. He died on the cross. And because of that sacrifice, he is worthy. And that resurrection from the dead, he is worthy. And he promised that one day we'll be with him forever and ever. So let me give you three final thoughts on that. First, when you need direction regarding the future, it's comforting to know that God's plans are clear. John's vision here, a continuing worship on the throne, tell us that this world ultimately belongs to the Lord. Even, even it seems that this world is coming to an end. Knowing that our future moves our plans for this present is resting in the assurance that we have in Christ, the worthy of all praise. Number two, when we need someone worthy to carry out God's plan, be sure that Christ qualifies and is willing to fulfill God's plan. And lastly, for all of us, when we try to find the most creative way to express our gratitude to Christ, it is exciting to know that worship through music and prayer are some of the best ways to praise Him. So I want to ask you today, as you stand, as we sing this last song together, to sing in a different way, in a different tune, not in a tune that sounds perfect for the person next to you, but in a tune that is perfect for the Lord because He is listening to your voice. Because even though we're not in heaven, his throne is here on earth. And he's present right here in front of you. And you're surrounding God's throne. And I want you to sing the last song thinking that you are before him. And the way that you express your voice, expressing in the way that you know is directed to him, not to the worship leader, not to the praise team, not to the pastor of throne, but to him. As you were entering here, you were given a little card, or maybe it's in your chair, and it's a prayer card. From that moment, from this day and forward, we're going to dedicate a time in which we're going to ask you to present your prayers. And this little box over here is for you to deposit those prayers. Every Sunday, you will be asked if this is a moment that you can, because there will be a group of people praying for your needs. But if you feel compelled to come to the altar, or our version of altar. Come and pray. Come and worship. Bow down. Portray yourself. Whatever position you choose, there will be people standing here to pray with you. They don't know what you're going to be praying. They're just going to come to you and they're going to pray with you. We want to take the time to do that. We want to encourage you to do that. We want to pray with you. But let's sing together this last song. Let's worship the Lord like never before. Let's go back to the, to the origin of the worship. Let's go back to the moment when you became a believer in Christ. And your worship was just for him and not for nobody else. So I ask you to stand.